You're listening to Prom Tonight, the show where we talk about things and then sometimes write about those things. We are The Basic Pictures. My name is Rhys Davis Santibanyeth. With me is Daniel Green. Hi, Daniel. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? I'm grand. We're back. Bigger, better and more tipsy than ever before. I mean, all those things are debatable, <laughs> but I'm willing to uh, believe you in this instance. Uh, let's explain how this show works. Does it work? Does it really, though? Previously, we would come to the podcast with a few ideas each, and we would pitch them to each other, and the other person would choose which of those pitches the pitcher had to write, if that makes sense. Now we're taking a more freeform approach, because the way that Dan and I met was having a couple of pints and talking nonsense at a writing group in central London. And we thought, why not make the podcast about that? Because that's why we decided to do this in the first place, right? Yeah, and if I'm honest with you, once I'm a couple of drinks in, I think... I'm a lot more bearable. ...the ideas flow a little <laughs> bit freer. Oh, they do. Yes, I definitely agree. And so does the nonsense. So why don't we just get right into it? Uh, rather than reading out the whole piece that was the result of the pitch from the last episode, we're just going to read out little uh, teaser snippets... I'm going to go first, uh, reading Dan Green's Sublife, Living on Subscriptions. It should come as no surprise that internet shopping is booming right now. Thanks to the current state of global affairs, in the UK alone, 2020 saw the highest online sales growth in 13 years. Thanks to nationwide lockdowns, retail closure and stay-at-home orders, the country experienced its highest annual web sales growth seen since 2007, up 36% year-on-year according to the IMRG Capgemini Online Retail Index. For example, Amazon's UK sales soared by 51% last year to a record $26.5 billion, or £19.4 billion, whilst Uber Eats hit a revenue of $1.4 billion, or £1 billion, in the three months to 30th of September, jumping 124% from the same period in 2019. It seems increasingly difficult for brick-and-mortar stores to compete with these surges in web-based shopping. Even when retail reopened for business on the 12th of April, many big names have already succumbed to the realms of administration, or in some cases, liquidation. The subscription initially established itself as a popular model for newspapers and magazines, before cementing itself online in music, games, film and TV media. Now, it sets its dominant eyes on the rest of the retail markets. Where does it go from there? Well, basically, I mean, the whole point of this article, for me, well, it was partly jovial, mm. but, I mean, let's, let's, let's face it, I think uh, most people, particularly the people that I know, friends and family, even my parents, I think, uh, have just switched a lot to online shopping mm-hmm. for for the for, 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 for since I guess last what last March last April and yeah yeah the whole the whole thing was okay how far can we take this but in particular I chose the subscription model because over the past let's say five or so years the explosion in things like loot crates food crates clothing crate you know that whole the whole crate model. Mm-hmm. Um, seems to have been applied to everything. Yeah. So it was a case of, okay, I know I can get your HelloFresh or your Oddbox or this, that and the other, but can I get the same thing for clothing, accessories? What about living spaces? All that kind of thing. How far can you push it? So that was the whole point of this of this article, really. Um, and uh, yeah, it was quite fun to, to, to write and to, to research. And how far can you push it in the end? Pretty far. Pretty damn far. There's, pretty far? I don't okay. think there's many corners of the market where a subscription store model isn't available in some form. I mean, just to be clear, hmm. we're not talking direct debits or repeat orders. Okay, yeah. The way that I see a subscription model is more 
you pay a regular fee, but you get something new or the choice of something new each time. Mm. A bit like a part works, if you remember what they used to be. Um, you know, you, you receive something, but it's it, it's different. It, 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 it captivates you every time. So you obviously yeah. are encouraged to keep subscribing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes. Uh, cool. Well, I look forward to reading the rest of it over on Medium.com. Indeed. In that vein, uh, I shall read out... Um, your article entitled Themes and Schemes, a.k.a. Adventures in Thematic Parallax. That's quite a title. Did I did I write that? Did I really? I must have been sleep deprived at the time. I'll forgive you, don't worry. It has been some time. <laughs> so let's go. On one fateful Saturday night, back in the before times... I had just finished watching a film of niche interest at the Prince Charles Cinema with a friend. Let's call him Derek. And we'd managed to find an empty table at a central London pub. Truly an auspicious night. While Derek ventured off in search of the first round, I guided the table, glancing around and by chance saw at the corner of my eye on a strip of chalkboard above the bar up in the corner where the lighting didn't quite reach, scrawled in beautiful calligraphy, people are easily seen and events often witnessed, but it takes vision to recognise ideas. When Derek returned, I pointed out the sign and we broke down that evening's movie according to this new framework. People, events and ideas. While we agreed on the characters involved, saw eye to eye on the order of events, we fundamentally disagreed on what idea the story might be implying. We started by connecting strings of moments and the cluster of characters involved, but because it was easy to do the opposite with the same, these felt quickly arbitrary. It wasn't until the end of the night we started to draw on other films to justify our opinions building an argument based on common tropes and a difference in their application and consequences. Since then, these conversations have helped weasel wildly different interpretations of stories that otherwise felt familiar and safe, and have even breathed new life into those that had started to go a little stale, and make some already great films feel that they fit in an ongoing film conversation. Over the years, I've come to rely on this parallax view of cinematic ideas and pop culture more broadly. Here are some of my favourites. And I'll leave it there. Yeah. That's a nice that's a nice opener to what I can tell is going to be a nice in-depth review. That's great. <laughs> I look forward to reading the whole it, thing. It is definitely okay. in-depth. I'm not embarrassed to admit that that's not my best. It felt a bit muddy at times. Like I'm, I wasn't really sure what I meant at some points. Like I could have used clearer language. Oh, I think you're too hard on yourself. Uh, I think uh, no, I think that's a really, really good opener to uh, a very interesting topic. Uh, I think uh, I think a lot of people enjoy that one. Oh, I was worried that like if I just wrote a straightforward introduction, like I'm going to be talking about these things, then it would come across as too dry. I wanted to throw like a human element in there. And that's why he started off with a short story about going to the Prince Charles in 
Leicester Square. With Derek. With Derek, yeah. Oh, good old Derek. So those are the uh, snippets from the articles uh, that we did many months ago. But between that time and now, uh, what, have you, what have you been up to? Well... I'm glad you asked. I know that we said we'd do a more freeform show, so I've only come to this with two conversation topics, the first of which is my house shoes. Have I mentioned my house shoes to you um, off-air before? Okay, I'll be honest, I was not expecting that. Um, already House shoes. Already, already captivated. Uh, so, over the course of um, the lockdowns, I, I put on a bit of weight. Um, I'm going to admit it, I'm going to say it right here. I do not fit into all the clothes I used to fit into. And I really like my clothes. I like colourful clothes. You know this about me. You must have seen me wear... Trying to say, join the queue. I don't think I know anybody, anybody, who still fits into the same pair of jeans they had when this all started. Oh, well, luckily... That that makes you feel any better. Yes. Well, my favourite jeans have an elasticated waist, which (laughs) has come in very handy. Um, But yes, you know... I've been wanting to to wear new clothes and when the January sales rolled around normally I look at this as a time for experimenting for buying something that I wouldn't normally buy something that maybe would have been out of like my price range for something experimental and think you know go for it like if it only costs half of what it would normally would then I don't mind taking a risk on it I didn't do that this year what I did instead was I bought shoes uh, because I thought that none of the clothes fit me. I would like to lose some weight, so if I, anything I buy now might not fit me in a few months' time, and then it'll just be pointless and I'll never get to wear it anyway. So shoes. I bought I bought three pairs of shoes, which is an inordinate amount of shoes. Interrupt me at any point, by the way. You can join in. You know how Eminem, he's got like a hype man, and like, what? Feel free to do that, Dan. <laughs> I, uh, to be honest, I, 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 was, I was just taken aback. Um, when you say three pairs of shoes, are you saying three pairs of house shoes well shoes in general they are they are shoes in general but i'm using them as shoes around the house i'm not in the habit i'm not a monster okay i don't wear trainers around the house we have carpeted floors i'm not gonna i'm not gonna get them filthy with mud from the streets people spit on the streets people uh discard cigarette butts people use their dirty shoes on the pavements i don't want to get that in on my carpets um, so these three pairs of shoes have become what I now affectionately denote as house shoes. <laughs> they make me feel like I'm dressed up when I'm at my desk because I've got shoes on. It's almost like I'm working um, somewhere. Have you ever heard of slippers? Yes, but slippers are... <laughs> slippers are for people who've given up on life, I think. I'm I'm currently under 30. I think I can say this. I'm allowed to be casually dismissive of people who wear slippers. They're comfortable, uh, but they're like Ugg boots, uh, which you cannot wear outdoors. These are shoes that you could wear outdoors if you had somewhere to go in them. I have nowhere to go in them, have, therefore I wear them indoors. You have no idea how offended I am right now. <laughs> if you've ever seen my um, mock Converse Chuck Taylor slippers, you would know how wrong you are. Oh, I've I've seen um like mock Nike trainers. <laughs> They're like these huge balloons made out of cotton wool. I mean I do look like Sideshow Bob <laughs> when I wear them. I'll say that now. Okay. But they are incredibly comfortable. I'm sure they are comfortable. The point of house shoes isn't to be comfortable, it's to feel like you're dressed up with somewhere to go. If I sit down on my desk and I try to do any kind of work for like half an hour or more, if I'm not dressed to be doing that, then I won't focus. I don't know what it is about my brain that's like, 
if I'm in my pajamas. The thing, the thing is, for the past twelve months, nobody has had anywhere to go. Yeah, and that's a problem for me. I don't like having nowhere to go. My or my brain doesn't like it. My brain wants to it think. Sounds, it sounds like it's a. It sounds like it's a problem for your house slippers or your house shoes. Sorry. Well, my house shoes love it. My house shoes are happy to, you know, to to get used up. <laughs> they like feeling me inside of them. <laughs> So let me let me tell you about my house shoes. First of all, is a pair of half trainers, half hiking shoe. Okay. And they're amazing. They're very Wait, hipstery. How do you have, do you have very steep stairs? Is that the issue? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Why not? I mean, every time I climb them, it's like climbing up uh, Mount Snowden. No, it's just uh, you know, it's just, they feel active. Like I said, if I wanted comfortable shoes, I'd put some slippers on. I've got a pair of like slipper socks. So I don't ever use you've them. You bought. Hang on. Let me get this straight. Yeah. You've bought a pair of hiking boots to wear. Yes. So that you can. So merely having them on your feet makes you feel like you're doing something active. Exactly. The second pair are a pair of uh, Air Jordans. They are bright red with a white sole and then like yellow lines on them. So they look a bit like um, the trainers that Sonic the Hedgehog would wear. Oh, yes, same with you. And they're my shoes for when I want to go fast. <laughs> when having a double espresso what? isn't enough. Right, okay. Um, are you running on the spot when you wear these? No, I'm I'm sitting in my, my comfortable chair. Okay. In front of my laptop. So it's more the 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 the, the apparent metaphysical nature of, of running fast. Do you get off from killing my vibe, Dan? No, I'm 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm just uh, putting myself in the shoes of uh, another uh, the the three high shoes yeah. of another just to understand this the situation at heart. Well, look, and the third the third pair of house shoes are very sit around and do nothing shoes. They're a pair of Vans, and I've never owned a pair of Vans before. I thought they'd be great. I thought it'd be really comfortable. They've got great reputation. They're super flat. They're very hard. Um, the canvas isn't particularly giving, uh, but they they look amazing. It's uh, they've got they were partnership with MoMA, the Museum of Modern Arts in New York, and. There's um, Monet's water lilies on the front. They look great, and I'll show you sometime if I see you. But there we go. Well, uh, house shoes. I guess. I guess when when obviously things will get back to normal, and we're able to go around each other's houses, uh, I'll be able to see them. You'll be like, damn, Reese, sick creps. Uh, wicked house creps, yo. That kind of thing, yeah? <laughs> well, at that point, they'll just be regular creps. They won't be house creps anymore. Oh, but doesn't that spoil the whole? Doesn't that spoil the whole thing? No, because I don't need them. If I if I can actually go out, because I miss going to the writing group. I miss having somewhere to go on a Wednesday that I can go and sit down for a couple of hours and actually do some writing. And I can't do that anymore. And so what I have instead is house shoes. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm a bit, I am a bit bewildered. That okay, um, that okay felt like it had so much subtext. It's like, okay, Reese has yeah. clearly lost it. <laughs> Let's move on. I just love the fact that you have three pairs of shoes that you wear at home. And one of them is solely for the purpose of doing nothing. Which, in effect, <laughs> is the same thing that the other two actually do, but you perceive them to have other beneficial properties, such as running fast in it whilst being stationary. Or just feeling fast. If I can, if I can feel fast whilst I'm writing, then that's that's like a good thing, right? It's like a, right. so an emotional so boost. Are you saying that they are uh, performance-enhancing or mood-boosting <laughs> mood footwear? Yes. 
their, yeah. their emotional so support footwear. You're, you're going to double drop a pair of Nikes uh, to uh, go fast. <laughs> These are your speed shoes. Exactly. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> they are. You know, if you say it like that, it sounds ridiculous, which isn't fair. Right. Sorry. My bad. <laughs> well, uh, I'm just going to point out now, it's been six to seven months and the best we have so far is three pairs of shoes. We're off to a good start. That's what I'm going to say. Hey, I'm setting the bar very high here. This is this is top quality content. <laughs> we totally didn't restart this episode four times for this at all. Okay, you know what, Mr. Mr. Hotshot, Mr. Judgy, Mr. I don't need three pairs of house shoes. Why don't you give me a pitch? Give me, give me something to talk about. Well, I have. Um, there's been there's been a few things that have caught my attention, as as many of the people. Um, one um one thing I've been thinking about lately is how quickly people can memeify something. Memeify. Yes, That's so a cool, you know, uh, um, cool let, let's say an, an event happens. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how big or how seemingly small that event is, mm-hmm. but there'll be there'll be something about it that um, encourages a number of people to make a meme about that event. Um, case in point, um, obviously, very recently uh, there was the um, uh, evergreen tanker that was effectively jackknifed in the Suez Canal. <laughs> now that in obviously is a, a, a major issue. It's a global mm. issue. Um, it cost uh, the global economy uh, millions and millions of pounds every day in delays of shipping. But for some reason, because of the current sort of global climate, whether it be the pandemic or otherwise, that we're currently living in, it almost felt trivial. Like, oh, isn't this some crazy, quirky thing? And it wasn't long before, you know, people jumped on this and started to um, splice it with things like Tokyo Drift and Initial D. And, <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah, it's strange how certain events will be uh, converted into something subversive and whimsical. I guess it helps uh, that we're say. living in unprecedented times and that there is an ever like there is just a huge number of people sitting at home, uh, working from home, looking for an excuse to just kind of doss off for a bit, who aren't wearing their house shoes. And so they're not in the right frame of mind to focus on what they're meant to be doing. I think it's also to do with things just, like... Uh, if more people owned house shoes, these things wouldn't happen. I think it's also to do with things like, say, finding the comedy in tragedy, right? Yeah. So it's like, oh my God, this is a crazy... You know, again, sort of somewhat unprecedented issue. I don't recall this ever happening before in in the Suez of of such magnitude. Um, so that sort of events is, like I said, in, in a normal scenario, that would be major news. Everyone would be falling off their chair in horror. Um, but instead, we're we're splicing it with. Vin Diesel going around the corner and, you know, uh, hitting the handbrake and things like that. It's just, yeah, it's just quite funny how these certain things can be taken by some people. Yeah, I, but just to give it some context, like it's a, an economic catastrophe, but in terms of like the human cost, um, it didn't really have such a, a large immediate impact, right? 
that there were no injuries, well, there was no deaths, unlike the the Beirut explosion in 2020. Well, no, of course. Which wasn't memeified. No. Right? No. Because that was an actual massive tragedy. I suppose, yes, if you put it that way, there's obviously an event where it's a um, uh, an ac- accident occurs, mm. but it's more of a global hindrance mm-hmm. than a global disaster. Yeah. Then, 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 or a, a, a sort of, you know, Reddit, Reddit sort of r slash mildly infuriating rather than r slash total catastrophe. No, yes. I, I, I yeah. see where you're coming from. Yeah, it's, it's look at this global annoyance. Let's yeah. poke fun at it mm. because there's no, it's not, like you say, there's, 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 at the end of the day, there's no um, uh, fatal uh, involvement. There's no true hardship. It's mm-hmm. not, there's, there's, there's no true offence to anyone. Apart, you know, apart from perhaps the guy who was at the helm, you know. But I'm yeah. sure, I'm, I'm sure he's going to get ribbing anyway, regardless of what happens. <laughs> <laughs> but I think also, you know, thinking about that sort of thing, it was also um, just looking at when does when does a meme hit uh, hit sort of like peak uh, exposure, and when does it start to plateau, and then sort of. Uh, fall away into obscurity. Um, so yeah, that, that's just been on my mind. Really, is sort of, you know, what people suddenly latch on to, and and how how short a, a bubble does it have before it bursts? You know, because hmm. some of these things will be hyped up and talked about and laughed about for uh, days or weeks, but then as soon as the obviously as soon as the tanker was freed. As soon as the cargo ship was freed and was was on its way, and things gradually returned to normal, yeah. then obviously it it's it's gone. The moment has passed. Mm-hmm. You know, those that are still talking about it become the ones who have the the satellite delay. You know, the the, the cool kids have already discussed this and moved on <laughs> to the next the next thing. You know, I think that's really interesting. The idea that you know memes have different life cycles. I don't know if you remember Ugandan Knuckles. That felt like it had a very short. Half-Life? Uh, yes, I do remember. I do remember. Somebody touch a mice baguette? That was another one that lasted maybe a week. The funny thing is, there were a lot of people who refused to let go of the idea of Ugandan Knuckles. <laughs> uh, to the point where people were even modelling Ugandan Knuckles uh, character skins on VR chat. Oh, that's how um, I first heard about it. There was like a video yeah. made using VR chat. Um, but no, I remember that being... Um, yeah, it was it was quite strange how again something completely obscure. Mm. I mean, a, a proper sort of out of context moment for for many people. Um, also, what what would you say is the relevance of a meme if that meme needs to be explained in great detail? <laughs> like for me, a meme should work purely on the basis of it being presented well, to you. Well, I don't know. It depends if you think of a meme as just an, any other form of art. Because, for example, if you looked at like a photo of the Twin Towers, uh, the terrorist stuck on the Twin Towers, then that doesn't necessarily have a lot of meaning outside of context. Like, if, if, you'd, never, if you'd never heard of 9-11, then that photo wouldn't... Sorry, it's a weird jump, isn't it, to go from memes to 9-11? But I think broadly... <laughs> I mean, I think broadly that applies. You, 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 I'm not going to help you. You're going to have to um, look. No, I'm not you're saying have to work yourself out this one. I'm not saying that you know they are equal. That these things are, have equal importance. I'm saying that art in general has this problem. 
So like yeah, when I first saw the when I saw the news reports of nine eleven, if I didn't have the news anchors there providing context, I don't think I've, I would have understood what was happening on screen. I would have thought maybe it was a clip from a nineties action film. I, I, I guess I see your point. I see your point. It, it feels I like you're asking slightly, like I am. I am slightly perturbed at the idea that memes could equate to art. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but then you know, yeah. I suppose it's it's a form of media that spawns a sort of almost a subculture uh and a following yeah like and very a, very lowbrow art and a niche art that's so lowbrow it's obscuring your vision but there is a sort of accompanying sort of um satirical understanding that memes are made for almost meme sake if you like you know it's sort of um none of this is serious but at the same time um it's something that exists and can permeate other culture, you know. I mean, the, you start getting meme references in other forms of media, such as mm. film, TV, that sort of thing, um, which is kind of insane in some regards. Yeah, well, and increasingly companies are trying to memify their products and their designs in order for them to kind of take off online and for Twitter users to do the marketing for them. Like, I don't know if you remember uh, the Met Gala a few years ago, Rihanna was wearing a dress that was long and flowing and people kind of photoshopped it into a, a Greg steak bake or to make it look like an omelette. I did not see that. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to have to look for that. That sounds amazing. But it feels like broadly what you're saying is kind of the, if you were to turn it into a Zen Cohen, it'd be um, if somebody posts a meme in the family WhatsApp group and nobody gets it, is it still dank? Well, it's like if a tree falls in the forest, but there's yeah. no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? <laughs> You're right. It's sort of, you know, if... if um, I mean, again, I I, I remember... <laughs> this is going to sound old. I remember a time before memes were a thing. So, you know, the, what's also quite crazy is that obviously there are people who uh, were born into a world where memes were established. And don't know, and don't, and don't know a world beyond or before that. Feels like it warrants a reference to Bane from the Batman films. You merely adopted the memes. I was born in them, <laughs> forged by memes. But it's weird how it's now almost like an accepted, established medium. Yeah. By a lot of people, I suppose in a way, it some of them remind me of. This could be far-reaching here, but in the same way that the likes of say. Uh, the Spectator or um, Private Eye or even like Spitting Image yeah, subversify and point, point fingers and fun <laughs> at, say, certain <laughs> events in time, right? Yeah. Some memes do the same thing. It's just a different way of, of doing that. So yeah. rather than a cast of, you know... Um, uh, slightly grotesque caricature puppets. Um, it's a picture of a cat uh, with some text underneath. <laughs> but it's still kind of doing the same thing of like, you I know, yeah. showing a slightly obscure spin on something. I mean, not all memes, obviously, but certainly memes are born out of an event. What you've said points out kind of part of what makes memes unique and what ties them into this broader ongoing tradition of references that we have in our culture. Because, you know, we were saying that memes have such a short lifespan, but they are referencing things that are very topical and very of the moment. Then as soon as that moment passes, um, the memes moment has passed. But then things like spitting image 
and Private Eye, they're referencing uh, things in the public eye which are kind of ongoing. Characters who are sticking around with us, like Boris Johnson, has been around for decades and will probably be around for a bit longer still. And so making fun of him stays relevant for longer, like as long as he's in the public eye. True. One of the things I loved about um, Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials was that it kind of drew on like the Christian mythology? Theology. The Christian theology for the basis for its story. And so because I went to a Catholic school, this idea of drawing on um, that kind of story and then playing with it and subverting it felt like it it pulled from an, an, a rich tradition. It was ripe for mining. Sure. And I guess that's kind of to a lesser extent what memes are doing. They're, they're still mining... Uh, a culture for something else you know some um meaning in some way but they're doing so maybe in a more shallow way yeah no i'll tell you with you on that one talking of mining a culture uh <laughs> the other thing that has gripped my attention um yeah quite frankly for the past several weeks looking forward to this transition uh, and, and and i i know that uh I've I've probably uh, bored the life out of you ad nauseum. I don't know what you is mean. The, is obviously the rise of the NFT. What? Or the uh, the 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 non fungible token. Non fungible tokens. Please, Dan, explain to me this uh, for the first well, time. I, I'm 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 going to keep this fairly short because um, Reese and I have discussed this uh, uh, off off podcast uh, on and off. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I say disgust. Uh, Reese has kept quiet whilst I've just spouted nonsense for <laughs> half an hour at a time into a void. Um, but there was a article that has uh, just recently been published um, on the Atlantic uh, website, mm. uh, which is an American publication, by one of the co-creators of the NFT, mm-hmm. which is basically saying. This is not what we wanted. It's a very interesting in-depth read, and it basically sets out to say, you know, the NFT was not supposed to end like this. They were trying to protect the artist and give their work, their digital works, meaning and worth. Mm -hmm. But essentially what they're calling tech world opportunism, which I think is quite a cool phrase, is basically struck again and taken over. So... It's it. Oh, oh, um. It's like I say. It's, it's on the Atlantic. It's uh, written by uh, Anil Dash, who is the CEO of Glitch, um, and uh, it, it's it's not a huge article, but it's a very interesting read. Um, I know there's a lot of uh, there's there's a sort of divided room when it comes to NFT. So just in case people uh, who are listening to us don't understand what an NFT is. Okay. So from what you've told me previously, from what I understand an NFT is, it's kind of... And let's be fair, I'm an outsider as well. (laughs) I'm just on the fringes of barely understanding the whole concept, but it it does fascinate me. Okay, so you're an an expert... expert. No, 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 no. Any any misunderstandings uh, that arise from this podcast are squarely your fault. If anyone loses money based off uh, NFT trading after hearing your advice, they can sue you for it. Am I right on understanding that you're uh, you basically have um, a PhD in NFTs? Yeah, yeah this is more than that. Sure. <laughs> so an NFT, as I understand it, is kind of like um, someone has stapled a Bitcoin to a picture or a song or some piece of artwork. Is that basically yeah, it? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, maybe more of a key ring, but yes. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so, yeah. Um, 
I mean, at the sort of the, the base level, you know, um, five hundred people could have the same picture. Okay. But you have the you have the uh, associated uh, watermark or token. Okay. That belongs to that artwork, yeah. which means that you are the uh, rightful owner, and your copy. Mm-hmm is what's worth something. Because digital artwork is very easy to replicate and to, to share and not necessarily attribute to a specific source. And so it's kind of difficult to make it worth anything, right? And that's where the appeal of NFTs come in. Right. I mean, there are obviously a, a large number of uh, digital uh, portfolio websites out there. Um, but for a long time, and, 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 and I guess it, it, it's happened for many years, IP theft and theft of digital work is is so easy uh, and it's very difficult sometimes for uh, people to claim copyright on mm. a piece of work that goes up online you can do things like put big watermarks over them and stuff like that but then that takes away from the piece yeah it's a bit ugly so it becomes yeah exactly and obviously you'll know with your photography it can be quite difficult to um, show your best work for mm. fear of someone taking it and making it their own uh, and, unless you have you know the original raw file saved on a backup somewhere how do you uh, claim that yours is the original right yeah well I mean photography is interesting in that like for example Annie Leibovitz is a photographer who I greatly admire and she I think currently works mostly for I want to say Vanity Fair um, she does okay. these fantastic um, portraits for their covers and you know for their articles inside because it's for Vanity Fair which is already a commodity in itself you know you, you can buy a subscription to it you can buy the physical copy the emphasis isn't on having an original piece of art but the function that the art provides and so I think photography sure you know you don't it doesn't need to be the original a lot of the time like like music you know nobody worries about having the original file on Spotify we are enjoying the end product of a process well I suppose if you if you relate it back to say traditional art medium then obviously having the original canvas is worth far significantly more than say uh, a copy of a print yeah. of that artwork if, right? if so, you're buying it at Sotheby's or Christie's then yes I imagine that <laughs> some sort of a way to authenticate the originality of the piece or, you're or, buying for several so, millions so, that, so that, yeah, yeah so this is the point so um the way that a lot of these NFT um, uh, images or... Well, it's not... Again, I, I shouldn't limit it to images. Mm. Um, NFTs have been assigned to short uh, short animations, GIFs, uh, music files. Um, I know there are certain artists who are looking to release um, limited, limited editions mm-hmm. um, of their music. Um uh, and I think the way that works is that it will come with, let's say, um, exclusive uh, associated artworks or remixes that you can't get any any other way, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. So the whole point is to have some form of value and worth. Exclusivity is, is yeah. a big thing here. Because if there's limited supply, um, you can turn it into a commodity. And therefore right. it's like collectible and you can inflate the price. But but in, in the same way that this happens with standard digital art and art mm-hmm. in general uh, mm-hmm. what you're finding is an explosion of these NFTs where there are people who are generally producing 
incredible pieces of work uh, who were about, let's say, 10 to 15 percent of the, of the uh, creations. And the other 85 is pretty trash who are just <laughs> trying to grab the coattails uh, and, and ride this thing to make a fast buck. Yeah. That's what it feels like. Uh, and there's also, dare I say, unfortunately, again, with anything that's digital, mm-hmm. there's already been a large number of uh, supposed online thefts of mm. work, of works being corrupted, of um, NFTs being broken somehow. Mm. And one of the biggest issues is that the whole NFT market is pretty much unregulated. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, a traditional auction where things are fully, are fully sort of uh, robust and mm. there are um, things put in place. It, it's it's a very unregulated sort of uh, system, and of course it's all done with it with with um, Ethereum, which is a type of cryptocurrency. So you're talking essentially about. You know, things that, in essence, that are not tangible in any shape or form, but somehow are given incredible uh, supposed value to. So, like, with any new kind of internet craze um, and kind of speculative opportunity, it seems that what we're talking about is a, a kind of bubble. Yes. That could burst at any moment, and a lot of people might end up losing from that. And from what I understand, cryptocurrency itself is a bit of a bubble. And so the, the NFTs in general seem very unstable. It's like a bubble within a bubble. It is. Uh, and the, 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 there's also the um, eco side of this as well, where mm. um, in order to generate an NFT, I think the process is called minting, to mint an artwork or to mint uh, a piece of medium. It creates uh, a lot of environmental issues because of the amount of energy uh, and resource required mm-hmm. for the process. Yeah. The same way that mining a bitcoin mm-hmm. takes an immense amount of energy and resource. Um it's the same thing. So I think there was some obscure not obscure but some sort of seemingly ridiculous statement that the process of mining Ethereum is similar to that of a small country's power grid. Wow. It's 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 yeah. so so every time you're minting something, uh, you have to pay gas fees. So you're paying energy fees to have this token produced. And a lot of the time, for people who, again, I mean, uh, I, I, I take this for what you will, but. People who I think are more in this for the money than the art's sake itself. No, what? Chances are really no, no. But what, okay, no, I don't refuse to believe that people in it for the money rather than the art. Right, but what I'm saying is, <laughs> you'll get stuff that is hurriedly put together, yeah, in order to be minted. Sure. And there are a lot of uh, there's been a lot of um, situations where that person hasn't solved that piece. That piece still remains for sale, and they're down uh, a large sum of money because they thought they would get an instant return. There's this weird. There was this weird sort of initial uh, push 
where it seemed like everyone was like, well, everyone wants an NFT. So as long as I mint anything, someone will buy it mm-hmm. because they'll think that because they'll think they're all worth value. So, and I think that simply isn't the case. If NFTs are based off Ethereum, does mm-hmm. if you buy an NFT, is the value of it at least the value of Ethereum? So it, it no, I think you can sort of you can set an initial price, mm-hmm. but then it's bidded on. So, for instance, you can say, uh, uh, at least 0.15 Ethereum, which might be like, you know, a few grand, or however much Ethereum is. I'm not totally up to scale. Okay. Sorry. Um, The same as, like, no one buys a Bitcoin. People buy a percentage of a Bitcoin, or they mine, you know, a percentage (laughs) of a Bitcoin. It's still worth tens of thousands of dollars. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's unlikely you'll have a whole Bitcoin because it's about like 50, 60k at the moment. It's ridiculous. I know it's inappropriate, but um, I had this um, analogy in my head of um, a 20 inch pizza. Like nobody buys a 20 inch pizza for themselves. Uh, you, you share it with a bunch of people. Uh, it depends. Depends how much time you've got in your hands. Uh... <laughs> and how badly you want to fit into that old pair of jeans. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, um, this. The, the reason I'm mentioning, if I, if I, if I go back to my original mm-hmm. uh, comment, yeah, this particular article is really uh, quite eye-opening in some way because, as I say, it's one of the original co-creators sort of opening his his soul, if you like, to say, look, this is what we set out to achieve. And obviously, you know, the internet, the world has taken this and kind of muddied it you know, mm-hmm. and made it into something that we weren't expecting or not. Now, I suppose you'd have to ask, could you not have foreseen this? Like, you're you're providing the tools, mm. but if there is this potential eventuality, is that not something that they should have foreseen? But then there's the argument is, we're just providing you the tools, it's up to you what you do with them. You know? Yeah, I mean... It kind of reminds me of um, Oppenheimer, the physicist who designed the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. Kind of his quote was, "Now I become death, destroyer of worlds." And it sounds like the creators of NFTs, their equivalent would be, "No, I am become debt, emptier of bank accounts." <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, again, I mean, the other thing also obviously is a lot of the um, works that have sold for the most money. Mm-hmm aren't necessarily because that piece was truly incredible no. and worth that much money. Yeah. Well, give or take, and there are a couple that are significantly impressive. It's more to do with who is selling them. Mm-hmm. And it almost feels like I'm not buying an artwork. I'm not buying a WAV file. Mm-hmm. I'm buying like a digital watermarked autograph. Mm. I'm kind of thinking it's more like getting an autograph. Case okay, yeah, point, I can see that. Uh, uh, Jack Dorsey, um, no, um, creator or well, one of the creators of, of Twitter, sold, he minted his first tweet, right? Mm. Now, that in itself is mental to me. But there are actually, there is a process where you can actually sell your own tweets as 
NFTs. Is it now, the actual honest. tweet or just like a JPEG of a, a screen screenshot? Wow, it's uh, a good question. I think so. I think the idea is you connect your Twitter account mm. to this site, right? Okay. And then people can search for your tweets within this database. And if someone wants to buy your tweet, you receive their bids and you then get to decide whether or not you want to accept their bid. So they're bidding on your... I, I find the whole thing quite scary in that regard. You know, I, mean, I don't know where we're going to be you know, 20, 30 <laughs> years from now. Are people just yeah. going to be able to buy my thoughts you know, tell you as what, I'm having them. I'm pretty glad that I've not said anything hugely embarrassing on Twitter. I can only imagine if if I well, if we ever got to the point where we well, were right? uh, renowned names in the writing game. I mean, and somebody I'm, got I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, history, found something yeah, really I'm embarrassing hoping, and stupid. I'm hoping that people are scrubbing their internet history of <laughs> tweets before they connect this thing. You know, oh that. I, yeah, I, I've got some really great ideas. Ignore the first couple of years where I was a racist bigot. You know, that kind of I thing? I wasn't even thinking that kind of thing. Just stuff like, oh, I wonder if... Um, <laughs> I wonder if sausage rolls taste any good if you microwave them. <laughs> and then five minutes later, spoilers, no. I'll be honest. <laughs> that's the kind of tweet that will probably sell with the highest value. <laughs> that's the kind of yeah. ridiculousness where, that people, certain people love. But not the kind of thing you want to be remembered for. So, yeah, <laughs> again, this. I mean... I, I think um, certain celebrities and they're getting in on the act yeah. of these NFTs. And I think this is also that thing where, again, like memes, when does the NFT stop being cool? Because I think when it, when when news of this NFT, I, I'm, I'm going to call it a movement. It's not really a movement, but when, yeah. when, it, when it sort of first broke, it sounded crazy it sounded cool it sounded like almost like a little breakthrough for digital artists but also this new way of 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 making money from the work that you produce i can tell you the truth the whole thing reminds me of the gamestop shares thing it, yes i mean there's also that as well like at the, at the, when it was first, when i first heard about it i people pitched it to me as like oh isn't it great it's revolutionary it's um sticking up for the little guy against the big hedge funds but in the end it's just it's what the stock market is. It's just people buying and selling shares and some people make money, some people lose money. It is essentially, uh, you could argue it's a form of gambling as well. Um, yeah. Very much a sort of gambling. But it, it's it's that whole idea of, of, of now that the big names and your average celebrity or, or someone who is literally just in it to make money, mm-hmm. is yeah. it starting to lose its coolness now that everyone's not everyone but do you know what I mean like the, the more people get involved with this and this thing swells and the more it becomes muddied and moves away from its original sort of pure pure purpose i think something really cool would have to happen with the world where i think it's cool i so much of the internet is supposed to be amazing and creative but i don't see it doing very much i don't see it connecting people i don't see it sparking my interest particularly uh, the last thing I saw on the internet that really got me going, I think, was the Vlogbrothers. Uh, these two guys, brothers, sending video messages to each other every day for, I think, two years they did it in the end. Uh, I mean, they're still going, uh, not in quite the same format. Okay, well, 
let's, 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 let's move away from the whole NFT thing and let's talk about the Vlogbrothers. That sounds quite cool. What's that about? Have you not heard of the Vlogbrothers? So the Vlogbrothers are Hank and John Green, uh, relatives of yours, I presume, Daniel Green. <laughs> um, they are both novelists now. Twice removed. <laughs> John Green is... Ah, do you remember... This is going to mean nothing to most of our audience. Do you remember I met you about two weeks ago and I was wearing that kind of maroon hoodie with a face on it and you were like, oh, Reese, is that your face on the hoodie? And I said, no, it's John Green. It's that guy. Oh, right. Okay. Wow. So you've seen his face, even if you don't know him. And his... So he's famous enough to have clothing made of him. That's interesting. Well, he's made his own clothing. Right. Okay. I see. Uh, and then, so it was, they have like um, charity drives every so often. And so that was one of them. Uh, the profits from that went towards, I don't remember the exact name of the charity, but it is for reducing uh, childbirth mortality rates in Sierra Leone. So it's a cool cause, and they're cool wow. people. Yeah. Um, you might know Very John Green's work. He wrote The Fault in Our Stars, Looking for Alaska, Paper Towns, Turtles All the Way Down. His newest book that's coming out some point next year is The Anthropocene Reviewed, which is also a podcast. Any okay. of these ring any bells? I, I've, I've not heard... What sort of genres are they? Young adult fiction. Well, The Anthropocene okay. Reviewed is uh, something else. That's like... So it's, it's a semi-ironic project. It's um, taking aspects of the human-centred planet and then reviewing them on a five-star basis as if they were like Yelp reviews. Oh, wow. And okay. he goes really deep on it. So he, he covers everything from like Canada Geese, Diet Dr. Pepper, Prom Night... Um, Ebola. Wow, okay, that's, that's quite a jump. Yeah, it's, it's it's an eclectic collection. And, you know, obviously he rates things like Ebola like one star. And he rates things like Sunsets, five stars. And it's, it's about um, this idea that we have, you know, because reviews tend to pretend they are objective. Like they are factual, serious endeavours which try to inform other people of how good or bad something is whether it's worth them spending money on. And, you know, when it, what it really boils down to is a deeply subjective experience, not just of the original thing you're reviewing, but the act of reviewing itself is very subjective. And so he plays around with that. Wow. I think it's fantastic. Um, I love his work. And that's why I brought it up. I might have to check, I might have to check that out. That sounds great. You know, uh, it's, it's things so like it's, that. It's, it's, you say that that's coming out or it's just been released? Sorry. So the podcast has been out for a while. He's been working on that for, I want to say, two years. Uh, the book, oh, wow. okay. which is a compilation of the essays from the podcast, typed up, uh, plus a lot of other stuff that he's written, like other reviews in the same vein, put into a book. Cool. So it's like an like a anthology-style compilation of various topics that have come up on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, with extra stuff in it thrown in. Excellent. But, you know... Well, that's, a, that's a great recommendation. His, his stuff that he does, John Green, from what I understand... He really wants to create kind of content, in inverted commas. <laughs> I hate the word content. He wants to create stuff that gets people to kind of not slow down necessarily, but connect with things, to kind of just acknowledge their own subjective experience of the world, um, rather than relying on this pseudo-objectivity. And so much of what I see happening online when people are talking about, oh, isn't it cool that... NFTs are a thing, isn't it cool that GameStop shares are going up? These all fall into that latter category of of pseudo-objectivity. You know, we can pretend that something is objectively good and therefore safe to enjoy. And the Vlogbrothers work, Hank Green as well as John's, 
um, feels like it's in the opposite track. It's about saying that this stuff isn't necessarily safe to enjoy, mm. but it's there if you want to like grapple with it. And I'd, I'd like to see more of that on the internet. It's sort of almost like um, you should be aware of this thing, but you should also be aware of the uh, the, the after events, the 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 the, the, the results, or the, the, the sort of uh, the, the effects this could have. I don't even know if it's a should. I think should is too strong a word for it. I, you know, um, so so John Green is a writer. He he writes to entertain people in, in like a broad sense of the word entertain it's not necessarily about recommending the stuff that he's reviewing it's about recommending his perspective does that make sense like it's not yes. his views but his way of viewing so like you might disagree yeah. with the way that he reviews the taco bro breakfast menu but you know you might have something else which you have a similar relationship with that you would um i don't know maybe enjoy uh just a, admitting that to yourself or i see what you're saying having a model to copy to tell somebody else about something that you enjoy yeah it's, it's kind of like saying have you tried looking at this topic in this particular way you may not come to the same uh determinations or or, or uh thoughts that i did mm-hmm. but yeah it might help you to come to a uh, more in-depth or unique conclusion yeah. than it would if you just glanced at this sideways like you might do for anything else. Yeah, like I'm not telling you what to get out of it. I just hope that you get something out of it. And isn't that basically what all writing is? Like we write these these um, essays, these pieces based off prompts. Um but at the end of the day, we're just hoping that somebody gets something out of it. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think the the essence of of, of writing, particularly what 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 we do with these, um, shall we say, offbeat uh, <laughs> entries, yeah, is to strike some form of chord, you know, and and if anything, um, you know, again, it's sort of saying, this is my opinion on this particular topic. Mm. Uh, you don't need to have the same opinion, yeah. But perhaps what I've written will make you consider what your opinion is. And it doesn't need to necessarily be like non-fiction stuff, like we've talked about today. But like even novels, you don't necessarily need to identify with the main character. You don't need to hate the villain, uh, but just to have some kind of emotional reaction and to uh, hopefully get something from that. I feel like we're tying back into, in a roundabout way, uh, what you were talking about memes at the beginning. That <laughs> we don't want to call them art necessarily. But we definitely have some kind of emotional reaction to them. We do, uh, and I think, in, and they they draw, they mine from the culture behind. But them. I also think because they are, I suppose, also in a way because they are uh, created uh, in in such a kind of like human way mm. that they can't help but have some sort of emotional uh essence about them yeah yeah the humanity is already baked into that the, the fundamental level yeah i mean I, when i say emotional i don't mean like oh i read a meme and it made me cry <laughs> i mean like it's you that there is a certain level of either an underlining ingrained sort of humor to it or uh again satirical nature or or or, or, or pointing subversively at a current event that 
on some base level you you just get because yeah. of how it's been produced. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think if you printed off an A2 poster of Ugandan Knuckles, stared into his eyes for two hours, you might cry by the end of that. Yes, I mean, again, <laughs> um, I don't know if... I'm not sure if Ugandan Knuckles is the poster child uh, of, of memes, particularly in 2021. Yeah, not anymore. I mean, even when he first um, came out. But look, we, it's, uh, it's about time to wrap up the show. Now that we've come full circle, I think it's a good time to wrap up the show. Um, Is there anything we've talked about this week that you would like to draw inspiration from? Uh, I suppose, in in a way, perhaps it's... uh, I suppose one thing that did sort of uh, stay with me is the longevity of, of, say, um, a meme. I was thinking the same. It's it's impact. And when that bell... Where is that bell curve? And when 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 is the drop off point? So what does you know? what does that piece look like to you? Because I was thinking of doing the same, but I think I'd struggle with identifying a storyline there. Uh, I think I mean I suppose the, the issue is there are so many memes you could not do a overarching piece. Hmm. You would have to pick a particular meme. Do you know what I mean? Like for instance, I'm not like, and also there are so many different types. Of meme media, mm-hmm. like you have your traditional meme, you then have your dank meme, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with the sort of uh, burnt-in imagery, an extreme kind of yeah. off-the-wall mentality. <laughs> um, you have your uh, your political meme. You have your uh, right-wing can't meme. Uh, you have, yeah, it is okay. You would, I think, if you try to do a piece about memes in general, I think it would end up being, dare I say, too generalistic because there's so much ground to cover. I think you'd have to pick a particular meme and just examine its popularity and where it dipped uh, as a as a point of commentary mm. about the life of that meme. Oh, that'd be interesting. Like, what what can you insinuate about the broader culture based off the rise and fall of a particular meme? Is that what yeah. you're suggesting? That's cool. Any ideas what that might be for you? Are there any that you remember that stand out that you'd like to just take a look at and take a look at that kind of, take a cultural snapshot using that meme? Uh, I suppose, um, I'm just trying to think. Uh, you've, you've caught me off guard there. I mean, again, I'm not talking about the originals, the sort of Eichenhaus cheeseburger or ceiling cat. Sure, yeah. And all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, do you remember the, 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 there was the one which is like the... the the um, the one that I always used to like is uh, you and the guy your girlfriend told you not to worry about. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. also a good one. <laughs> um, uh, the other one is uh, with uh, Drake, where he's like dismissively looking away from a topic, huh? and then he flips back and he's liking the one below. That's always good. Um, and then I guess the one that I think is probably for me not the most famous, but the one that uh, is is one of the more memorable is the guy turning around and sort of checking out the girl behind him mm-hmm. and his partner's oh, like, yeah. "What yeah. the hell? What or WTF?" Yeah. And then how that was used to superimpose all manner of topics of, of, <laughs> of things. Uh, I think that's probably one of my favourites, and how that was. How that was often used to sort of 
describe a current event. Mm. I think that's also what I used to love about certain memes is their um, malleability, their, their adaptability. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what adds longevity to a meme, okay, is how yeah. adaptable it can be. Yeah, I actually think that would probably be the way I'd take my article. What makes a good meme hmm. and, ha- and, and, it, and how is its life extended based on how adaptable it is? And I think that particular one where, you know, you had sort of jealous girlfriend as a guy's turning around to check out yeah. the back of it, and how that was used is a very good uh, example. Oh, that's cool. And I guess it helps that sites like um, Know Your Meme exist. So you could, you could, you'd have somewhere to start to, to look at the history of it and notable examples. Yeah, again, uh, it, with this sort of medium, um, a lot of the research is already there. Yeah. But it will be a very good, uh, a very interesting uh, read-up. Oh, I cool. Think, seeing how some of these exist. Yeah, I look forward to seeing where you take it. And I think those sort of memes are, end up being a lot more, dare I say the word, iconic, <laughs> than, say, something that is solely based around a particular event. Yeah. Let's say, for instance, the memes, again, the memes have been spread over the past week or so regarding the Suez Canal mm-hmm. jackknifed freighter. Yeah. That's, I suppose that could be used in other contexts, but it's very much a specific meme about a specific event. Mm-hmm. Whereas the jealous girlfriend thing, it has no real link to an actual event yeah. as much as I'm aware of. It's kind of, it's abstract, beca- isn't it? because of that. It depicts an emotion because, yeah, rather than Yeah, very much so. Because it's so abstract, yeah. I think that's what makes it so adaptable. Mm-hmm. Because it has no pre-existing physical link to something uh, specific. Yeah. There we go. So yeah. that's, that's what I think I take it. Cool. What about, what about you? Where, 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 what would you do? Like... Mm. Because obviously your article does not have to be in the same format. No. Uh, as I said, one of the th- one of the things about this show going forward is that we may only pick one topic, but I will very much look forward to seeing how we potentially come up with two wildly different articles. So, how would you take that? I I can see two ways of doing this. One way is. Have you seen The Matrix of Nicolas Cage? No, what's this? So it's a graph, and then they plot the length of Nicolas Cage's hair and the quality of the film. <laughs> and what emerges is a trend where Nicolas Cage's long hair films are his best. Wow, okay. It's something just phenomenal like that. That's, that's, that's hilarious. So, so basically, <laughs> uh, depending on the length of his hair... That correlates to the performance and therefore quality of the movie. Yeah, there are some anomalies, uh, obviously, like any good graph, uh, like any good science. (laughs) But yeah, I like that you could do that kind of thing or you could do like um, kind of like how there's a political matrix of economic left and right and then authoritarian libertarianism. You could do that with memes, maybe, and kind of plot them on a graph. That'd be one take on it and then just sort of ramble a little bit about some of the explanations behind it. Or I think what would probably be more interesting is kind of fictionalizing the story of a meme, like personifying it as though it was a sort of consciousness on the internet. And it's like starts off as a spark on a TV show uh, before somebody nurtures it and turns it into a, a meme that they post on Reddit or Twitter or whatever. And then it kind of grows and then it sort of warps and becomes a bit disfigured in places and it kind of the corruption takes over it until it 
kind of rots and falls away and declines into maybe nothing until somebody remembers it and mines it into an NFT. Oh, God. And then it lives on this kind of undead afterlife state. So what you're saying a zombie is meme. you're going gi- to you're, you're give a meme consciousness. Yes. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Frankenstein this meme. You're going to make it sentient. <laughs> a, sentient a sentient, self-aware meme. Yes. And then after I've written it, I will create uh, another story to, to go back in time and terminate the original story. Uh, and stop it from going sentient. Actually, can I say? I know we're running out. Of, we're running a little bit out of time here. Yep. Um, one other thing that I <laughs> read recently, yeah, which almost melted my head, was it was basically to do with the Terminator franchise and trying to plot the time travel from <laughs> Terminator <laughs> right the way yeah. through to Terminator Genesis. So this is written. It was written just before Dark Fate. Uh, when? Sorry, when is Terminator Genesis? Because I gave up after Terminator Three. Okay. Uh, well, you, that's a shame. Because I mean, I'll be honest. Terminator Three is quite easily the worst in the entire franchise. Um, <laughs> you say that, so but got... I watched it when I was an impressionable seventeen-year-old. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay, fine. Well, yeah, right. and then yeah, I went I back to two, why. and then to one, and then I was like, well. I can see that three is the worst, but I still quite like it, and I don't want to try anymore. Is that the order you saw them in for the first time? Yeah, that's the. I saw them backwards from three to oh, one. Oh, Reese! You know, I don't. That's embarrassing. No, I don't think it is. I'm. I'm quite happy about it. I. I can accept it. So, Terminator, Terminator Two, Judgment Day, obviously. Yeah. Terminator Three. Mm-hmm. Then I want to say Salvation. Then you've got Terminator Genesis. Okay. There's also Term- Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles TV show. I can tell you at this point, I'm not going to watch the rest of this. <laughs> no, don't worry. I don't believe you. I'm not going to. Then Dark Fate. <laughs> but basically... So is the movie Escape Plan part of the Terminator franchise? No, surely not. Because by the time Escape Plan t- came out, then, you know, well, Arnold Schwarzenegger must have been well into his 60s i can't imagine how his character would have made it through an action film unless he was the terminator oh so, so my head canon is that they are in the same series that's what i'm saying right uh i don't think so but I'll, I'll, you, you, you're, you're welcome to, to go with that but anyway the, the point i'm getting at is yeah th- this article had attempted to plot all of the timelines on one sort of uh diagram a noble pursuit and it was hilarious because it started off fairly sensible. Yeah. And it just gets crazier and crazier. You just end up with this sort of spaghetti junction mess of time travel. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fourth wall breaking slightly. Like, almost like looking at the camera going, if you followed it this far, we salute you. Because <laughs> none of this should make sense. That's what, that's what I feel like saying to our listeners right now. I feel like this podcast makes as much sense as the Terminator franchise. It's just spaghetti. So I might, I might send you a copy of, or I might send you a link to the site just cool. to sort of right, see the crazy, as I say, kind of like spaghetti junction <laughs> slash bolognese um, post-it noted diagram of, of of all these things. It's hilarious. Yes. Well, um, um, on that note, I think we should uh, say goodbye. Thank everyone for uh, listening Indeed. to an hour, uh, spending an hour with us at Bolognese Junction. 
and we'll come back next uh, episode with a couple of bits of writing on the lifespan of a meme. Uh, Reese, it's been a pleasure. It's been so long, but uh, it's great to be back. Booyah. See you, Dan. Take care, everyone.